Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast. This is where we have unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. Now today I am going to share with you a chapter from a book I wrote last year, Doctors Are Not Gods. This whole book is around the premise of taking responsibility for our own health and well-being, something that I think is pretty pertinent in uh, what's going on in today's climate. So please enjoy the chapter and next week I'll be back interviewing a person on a topic that some people feel uncomfortable about and they want society to talk more on. So love your feedback as always. Please rate, review, send me your feedback, send me ideas on new interesting people to interview or even topics that you might have in your mind. So contact me through socials or hello at wabisabiseries.com. Enjoy the episode and see you again next week. The Knowledge Gap I often wonder whether it's really possible for doctors to stay across all the continual developments and changes that occur at such a rapid rate these days. I realise that many doctors have done at least 10 years of training, if not more, before they become a specialist or GP. But how do they allow time for continual learning combined with increased expectations of patient care on a daily basis? In many cases, it's nurses who are spending a lot more time with the patients and seeing symptoms in more depth. Many nurses I know are also very proactive in learning more and furthering their education around topics that interest them. It's been interesting talking to friends in the medical sector who say it's apparent daily in their jobs that there are some challenges with doctors keeping up with the latest developments. One friend gave me prime examples of patient care where they would observe a doctor telling a patient, we've got nothing else to offer you. And yet, as he explained in one particular case, the patient could look into immunotherapy. There are some overseas trials happening that could be very relevant or even particular medication that would help to boost the immune system. But none of this was offered. No alternatives. His view was that they know what they want to know. Some are interested to learn more about developing techniques and expanding their knowledge. Many are not. When he quizzed the doctor on the alternative treatments, the doctor answered, Yeah, if I had the time... I would learn more about that. My friend's view is that a lot of doctors feel what they need to know is enough, and it's only when they have a real interest in an area personally do they learn more extensively about the topic. One area in which I've experienced an obvious gap in general practitioner knowledge over the past 10 years of my own health journey is gut health. After significant reading of every gut book or article I could get my hands on these past years, I came across a podcast in March 2018 that was groundbreaking for me. American plant-based ultra-athlete Rich Roll interviewed Zach Bush, MD. The story concentrates a lot on genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, the impact of the food chain on our gut health today, and the impact glyphosate, a chemical used in Roundup as a pesticide, is having on that food chain globally. I was interested to also learn from Dr Zach Bush that he stated doctors only do the equivalent of around 15 minutes of training on nutrition in all of their studies. I'm hopeful that modern training is changing in this regard, as the knowledge and importance of nutrition on our health and well-being is clearly documented these days. 
It did help me to understand why it was that I often found my knowledge of nutrition and gut health was more contemporary when I discussed it with some of my doctors in the past. Go with your gut. Now, I'm sure you've heard a little about gut health, or perhaps know about the importance of our gut health and the connection to our well-being. While the immune system lies throughout the body, 60% of the immune system volume and 80% of the heavy lifting done by the immune system is actually done in the gut lining. Even if you don't know much about gut health, you've probably tried a green smoothie or two, had a sip of kombucha, or even tried some kind of fermented food recently. All of these are great for your gut flora or gut microbiome, which is a mixture of trillions of bacteria, yeasts and viruses that exist deep inside your small and large intestine, or what we call our gut. Gut health is all about the balance of the microorganisms that live in our digestive tract. In simplistic terms, we all have millions of good and bad bacteria inside us that help break food down and digest things adequately. Sometimes our environment can impact our gut, but often it's our lifestyle choices – food, stress, medication – that can have a negative impact on this internal cocktail of goodness and cause us to be imbalanced internally. For example, I may be tracking wonderfully, I'm eating well, food is moving through me effectively – which is code for going to the bathroom properly every day – I'm feeling good, but then I get an earache that won't go away. The doctor insists the only way to kill the infection is to go on antibiotics. I take a course of pills for five days in a row, and yes, the infection in my ear goes away. But what also happens when I take these pills is that while they have fought off all the bad germs and killed the infection, they can't discriminate, so they kill off all the good germs in my gut as well. What I'm left with is a badly imbalanced inside now with less ability to fight off any future bad germs or infections coming my way. There's now research that shows that antibiotics are damaging to the gut microbiota and immunity. With some cases reporting that even six months after antibiotic use, the gut still lacks several species of beneficial bacteria. I know myself, every time I've been on a course of antibiotics, my hair goes like straw. It's like all the goodness is stripped out of me, so I avoid them at all costs and ask my doctor if there is any alternative. Often, I have to insist to not take antibiotics. Australians have a very high usage of antibiotics per capita, and doctors here love to prescribe them. More than 26 million prescriptions for antimicrobials were issued in Australia in 2017, and a staggering 10 million Australians had at least one antibiotic. Many people still think that they are the cure to everything. A friend made me laugh when she told me, my mum treated antibiotics like candy when we were growing up. If you had a cold, here, take an antibiotic. If you had a tummy ache, again, this will fix it. Reality is, a good bowl of my grand's old bone broth soup would have been the far better choice. But my mum didn't know any better. Antibiotics fight bacterial infections, but they don't fight viruses so often they are used unnecessarily. My concern is that they are used as a fix-all and they are causing us more harm in the future as we meddle with our delicate internal workings. In addition, overuse in general is a significant public health concern that can lead to antibiotic resistance. 
Antibiotics have been a groundbreaking, life-saving form of medication since they were first created in the 1940s. But there are now major concerns around antibiotic resistance. Today, there are very few new antibiotic strains under development. At the same time, antibiotic-resistant bacteria that survive antibiotic treatment are becoming more common, making available antibiotics ineffective. Thus, we are inevitably facing a major health problem. There are now campaigns pushing for Australians to stop taking antibiotics unnecessarily, and the data is showing that it's taking effect as antibiotic usage is falling for the first time in 20 years. In simple terms, if you take antibiotics when you don't need them, they may not work later when you do need them. As much as we all hate it, sometimes you've got to ride this stuff out. The body has an incredible ability to heal itself in many ways, but you've got to tap into these signs. Often, it's because of our busy lives or sheer impatience that we can't possibly deal with getting a cold. So, instead of taking a day of rest, like our body is telling us to, we push on. Pop a couple of pills, cold and flu day and night, anyone? And head into the office. What often happens, though, is that those pills just prolong the symptoms. So, while you feel okay to keep soldiering on, your cold ends up taking weeks to go away because you ignored it and didn't do the things to help your body to repair itself. I believe it's precisely because I was given too many antibiotics when I was younger that I have had a bad digestive tract for years. I have trouble breaking food down as I don't have the particularly powerful stomach acid, which means that food takes a long time to pass through my system and leads to my not having consistency with bowel movements. Such a great thing to admit to the world. Because no one has been able to help me with this over the years, I started to read as much as I could and learn more about my own gut health. I've been on that journey for more than 12 years. Around nine years ago, I stopped eating meat. It was only after doing a complete elimination diet where I consumed broths, juices and vitamins for a week that I finally recognised there were certain foods that my body reacted to differently than others. I did this detox in a dedicated wellness retreat and it literally became life-changing for me. After slowly reintroducing foods after the cleanse, I found that meat appeared to be a major problem for me. I never really ate a lot of meat, but when I did, I wouldn't go to the toilet and do number twos for days on end. My stomach would distend and I would be so uncomfortable. It appeared that I was unable to digest meat and break it down so it couldn't pass through my body easily like it does for other people. Once I stopped eating meat, my world changed. More veggies, salad and fish, and the change in my health, my skin and energy levels was immediately evident. I recently had to have a colonoscopy and gastroscopy, which requires you to go into hospital for day surgery. It's where they insert two micro cameras inside you, one goes down your throat and the other up your backside, so the surgeon can get a good look at your upper and lower gastrointestinal tract and see if all is well. Unfortunately, with my genetics, I'm predisposed to having cells that are naughty and mutate, so a few polyps had shown up and they wanted to remove them and check that they weren't malignant. Because they feed these tiny cameras inside you, you can't eat for 24 hours before and you have to drink this solution that makes you expel everything. I mean everything, inside your belly, before you hit the operating table. I went under the anaesthetic, 
they did the procedure and all went well. When I came to, the nurse in the recovery area was insisting I eat and drink something first before I was allowed to go. I was pretty happy with this idea because I'd not had anything other than water for nearly 29 hours by that stage. The nurse handed me a cheese and ham sandwich and an orange juice box with a straw. If it were real food, I wouldn't have had an issue, but it was not. The sandwich was on white, what I call air sugar bread, the cheese was the plastic slice processed crap, and besides my not eating ham for years, it too was not the real meat that Italians make, but processed jello-looking scum. The orange juice, loose term, was reconstituted with less than 5% real fruit and full of sugar. I looked at these strange, poor excuses for food and asked if there was something else. I'm sure the nurse thought I was being a princess, but then I asked her if she knew much about gut health. You see, considering I'd had my insides cleaned out completely for the operation, much of my good microbiome would have been expelled as well. The best thing to have immediately after an operation like this is fluid like water, electrolytes, bone broth-style soups. Even giving me a probiotic would have been a great start. Instead, they tried to force upon me food types that the World Health Organization has classified as Group 1 carcinogen, namely the ham or processed meat. So digest this, people. Eating the meat the hospital has given me as the first meal after surgery increases my risk of getting bowel cancer after just having had an operation to eliminate polyps that were being checked to see if they were cancerous. Mind blown. It gets worse. It appears that we not only need to increase the education around nutrition and gut health of our doctors, but those running the hospitals and creating the food menus as well. Only a few months ago, my husband Dennis had to spend a few nights in one of the newest hospitals in the country. It's been open less than a year, and while I was impressed with the state-of-the-art technology, basic things like noise levels around sick patients, room cleanliness and the food were appalling. It was like we went back in time to 1970. They were serving him dinners that looked like mush, complete with pots of custard and coloured jelly for dessert. I wouldn't let him eat it, instead bringing in far healthier options for him every day. Simple things like salads, hearty soups and fresh fruits. I just don't understand how we can be in this day and age with so much research highlighting the importance of nutrition on our health and we serve those who need the most help with their immune systems absolute rubbish. Talking with a few people in the industry, it appears the administrators running these hospitals are so scared of someone getting sick from food not being prepared or cooked properly that they've moved away from food that is high in nutritional value to what now appears almost like fake food substitutes. It feels as though they're treating Australia like a third world country. Food safety is a priority, not health or nutrition. How ironic is that? Talking with some of the dietitians who work with hospitals, they are continually frustrated with the system because they do all of this work creating balanced and nutritious menus and meal plans only to then be told that it's not possible to provide half the stuff. It's not deemed appropriate for mass consumption in a medical facility. Having run restaurants before, what feels like a previous life, I can only imagine that the complexity of providing the right food to the right person 
given all the preferences and dietary needs due to medical conditions, would not be an easy task. But surely someone high up enough to impact change has worked out that poor nutrition is likely to increase the length of stay for a patient and increase the already unsustainable healthcare costs. Many of the vegetables are not fresh, and the food has no or very little vitamins or nutritional value, so the hospital dietitians prescribed additional nutritional supplement drinks with added vitamins, proteins and sugar for calories. The irony is, apparently part of the problem is the affordability factor around providing nutritious meals. Yet things like nutritional supplement drinks are much more expensive than a plain old freshly made veggie juice would be. It just feels to me like investing in improving culinary skills in hospitals in order to produce better food could deliver massive cost savings if they got it right. I can't quite get my head around this. There is so much data and research around the importance of food we intake to ensure our immune system functions better. Patients are in hospital to recover, and I can't help but feel that if their immune gut health was better, they could fight the potential E. coli these medical administrators are so concerned with.